welcome to the Technicast. To those of you who sit eagerly by your devices, awaiting new content, we apologise, as it's been a little while since we've been able to release a new episode. And to those of you who don't, well, yeah, go on then, you can come in as well. As many of you will know, there were a number of strikes over the last few weeks involving the UCU union, which represents many academics. And while this podcast is about presenting research, it's also about supporting all researchers across the arts and humanities. And so out of respect to our colleagues who were involved, we decided not to release any new material. And we hope you understand. I'd like to thank Daniela for her wonderful piece last time out as she talked about Leonora Carrington. And indeed, someone at the Tate was definitely in sync with her as they started a new exhibition on surrealism, which uses Carrington's self-portrait, which Daniela talked about so vividly, as the main cover for all media. It's running until the end of August, so if, like me, you were inspired, do go and check it out. Now, usually we run our themes in a linear fashion on the Technicast, but due to the last episode, we thought we'd get a bit, you know, surreal with it. So I'm going to introduce the next theme, which is Shakespeare. But fear not, there'll be more surrealism and more Shakespeare. But today, we're doing both. And so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kate O'Leary, who is going to talk about Shakespeare's late plays, sometimes known as the Romances, among which is The Tempest. And she's going to tell us about connections between Shakespeare and the Surrealists, involving death, alchemy, and a bit of wonder. Surrealism and Shakespeare are rarely connected in contemporary discourse, despite André Breton's admiring references to the Bard and interest in his plays shown by Leonora Carrington and others. This is a pity, as they are more closely linked than is often suspected. After all, Shakespeare is the godfather of Romanticism and Gothic, both of which were acknowledged by the Surrealists as ancestral to their own movement. Both Shakespeare and Surrealism lend themselves readily, and in the case of Surrealism, knowingly, to rich and fruitful dialogue with Freudian psychoanalytic theory. Moreover, across the world, people labouring under oppression or colonial rule have drawn on Shakespeare and Surrealism as the most effective weapons in cultural resistance, and liberation from the alienation and thought control oppressive regimes impose. Shakespeare and Surrealism both interrogate power, explore the depths of the human psyche, celebrate love and eros, and pursue the wondrous and the uncanny, and both deploy alchemy as a dynamic of transformation to attain the marvellous. Alchemy had always been important to the Surrealists, providing a vocabulary of ideas to combine with Marxism and psychoanalysis to symbolise the climactic transformation of the world, life, and the human psyche that they sought. The chemical wedding, revolution and catharsis were to them ultimately one and the same. The detonation that will sweep us into a new surreal age where dream is unleashed and where beauty, which is synonymous with the marvellous, will be convulsive or it will not be at all. When Breton relaunched the movement after the Second World War, he did so with an even greater emphasis on alchemy and the tarot, focusing more on the healing power of the marvellous and the transformative power of the female principle, embodied as the mythical figure of Melusine, as symbolising the redemption of France and the path to a new world. In this podcast, I propose to discuss how Shakespeare, in his later plays, the so-called romances, of which The Tempest is the best known, uses alchemy, both as a symbolic language in the plays themselves and to turn the theatre itself into an alembic to cast an alchemical spell on the audience, creating for them a vision of the marvellous they can carry with them out of the theatre into the connecting vessel of the world outside. If you want to experience the truly marvellous, then you would do well to look at Shakespeare's late plays, Pericles, The Winter's Tale, Cymbeline and The Tempest. These are all written from about 1607 to 1611, and are nowadays referred to as the Romances. Whilst many are familiar with The Tempest, this play of voyage, magic, death and recovery is made all the more wondrous if we consider the three plays written shortly before. 
Let me give you some examples of what happens in these plays. Plot-wise, these texts strain one's narrative expectations, but on stage, they just seem to work. Take The Winter's Tale, which has one of the most extraordinary endings, where a statue of someone thought dead comes to life. Or Pericles, where a mother, after having given birth aboard a ship in a tempest, dies, is coffined, thrown overboard, and is washed ashore at Ephesus. The coffin is opened by a magus, Cerimon, a prototype for Prospero, who conjures her back to life. In Cymbeline, a young girl is thought dead and again, miraculously, comes back to life. The plays are dissonant, conflicting and diffuse. Non-linear narrative and ancient Greek, Roman and New World landscapes contribute to the disorienting effect for spectators. The dramatic devices reveal gaps, lacunae and slippages in the plot structures of the text, quite removed from the more conventional Aristotelian techniques that are seen in earlier work, particularly in the tragedies. Cymbeline, for example, is set around the time of the birth of Christ, but also has a subplot that is reminiscent of Renaissance Italy. The play also harkens to the founding of ancient Britain. Where are we then? Well, linear time is not central to understanding this text. Presuppositions of what a text will reveal cannot be presumed when the plots defy expected dramatic logic, are conflated and distorted, extending the margins of improbability and making them reminiscent of streamscapes. They invite wonder through the exploration of the possibility of worlds outside the realm of the real. Like The Tempest, these plays deal with kingdoms lost or rulers making catastrophic mistakes, but all is made well at the end. Moreover, these texts can be seen as correctives, repairing the mistakes made by earlier Shakespearean characters. In Cymbeline, we can hear echoes of Desdemona in Imogen's False to his bed, what is it to be false? In The Winter's Tale, we remember Othello in Leontes Too hot, too hot, to mingle friendship far is mingling bloods. Or Lear's wish fulfilment in King Cymbeline's joyous remark on the return of his three missing children. Oh, what am I, a mother to the birth of three, ne'er mother rejoice deliverance more. Wrongs righted are integral to these plays giving characters a chance for reparation and forgiveness denied to earlier creations. And this can happen only in these late plays. Death is as real in these dramas as in the tragedies and often comes about through similar moments of ill fortune or bad judgment. But death can be reversed and fortunes restored to those who are patient and let fate take its course. Furthermore, the texts have the miraculous woven into their plots, setting up the conditions for the dominant themes of rebirth and regeneration. And each also has a young heroine who is intrinsic to the development of these themes. Marina in Pericles, Imogen in Cymbeline, Perdita in The Winter's Tale, and Miranda in The Tempest. Each of these young female characters generates action and is integral to the journeys that form the plots. But the miraculous also suggests the effect that the plays have on the audience. They become enraptured, captivated, but also filled with wonder at such amazing outcomes, making them an active part of the dramatic experience. What's going on? Why these resurrections, these impossibilities? There is a definite mood to these late plays that encourages us to believe in actions we know can't happen in the real world, but that we wish possibly could. And in a sense, they can happen in the theatre, where anything is possible. Characters can die at every performance, and the actor and the character gets up at the end, takes a bow, and repeats exactly the same at the next performance. But there is something else going on in these plays. Shakespeare is drawing on a contemporary cultural resource that helps to underpin these ideas of regeneration and wonder. And this is alchemy. The philosopher's stone that can transmute base metals into gold was of great interest to Shakespeare's contemporaries. Even an important advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, John Dee, was a professed alchemist and may have been the model for Prospero in The Tempest. The process of changing base metals into gold was thought to be a series of chemical reactions brought about by the use of a catalyst, the removal of base or poisoned matter, 
resulting in a chemical wedding. This process was performed in an alembic, the vessel into which all these are distilled. If we examine the late plays metaphorically, then Shakespeare is adopting this process to produce gold, something rich and strange, as Ariel says in The Tempest, something magical. Poisons in the form of base or evil characters are erased from the texts. Catalysts are found in the heroines of the plays, Marina, Perdita, Imogen, and joyous weddings are in abundance at the close of all these dramas. But there's more. We are part of the process, the audience, for the theatre is the alembic, the vessel into which all the ingredients are placed, and that includes us, for as every actor or theatre-goer knows, the audience is a vital part of a successful production. In Shakespeare's day, the theatre was circular, signifying the eternal, the world, but also a container in which are placed people, ideas, language, communal energy. If theatre works effectively, then all these things come together to generate change. We see magic performed, and the audience emerges renewed, passing on social energy outside the theatre walls. Drama allows us to imagine, or dream, and these plays allow a reading of existence beyond the real, and challenge definitive editions of what we perceive life to be. We are asked to reevaluate a chronological vision of birth, life and death, as time shifts and lost bodies recover. Here are a few quotations from the plays to illustrate my point. Let your imagination hold, advises Gower in Pericles. Strike all that look upon with marvel, instructs Paulina in The Winter's Tale. Yet you are made rather to wonder at the things you hear than to work any, says Posthumus in response to an extraordinary chance meeting in Cymbeline. This is a stranger maze as air men trod, and there is in this business more than nature was ever conduct of, marvels a bewildered Alonso as Prospero's magic is worked through. So why is Shakespeare so interested in the marvellous, the wondrous in these late plays, written in the early 1600s? Well, like the Surrealists in the 20th century and again now, he is reacting to social and political upheaval. Shakespeare's world is still in turmoil after the seismic events of the 1500s that saw the whole spiritual landscape of England, and indeed much of Europe, change from a well-established centuries-old Catholic Church to a new religious order. This fracture in the fabric of English culture is still evident in the 1600s, with counterfactions and splits in the new established order. We need only remind ourselves of the gunpowder plot of 1605 to realise that instability is still very much part of English life. As a consequence, I believe that Shakespeare, in common with the direction taken by many surrealists, especially since the Second World War, is seeking to create a world of solace and of calm amidst an otherwise unsettled and spiritually bewildered country. The theatre then becomes an alternative to the church, for it allows the audience to dream and to heal. The contemplative mood that these dramas effect allows an audience to delve deeper into internal worlds other than those that they would normally use as their prime mode of referencing when confronted with a theatrical experience. The very strangeness and dreamlike quality of these plays takes an individual out of the quotidian and the commonplace and into a startling new realm of being. The theatre that Shakespeare creates through these new dramas becomes a theatre of tolerance, where harmony may arise out of diversity, epitomised in the heady mixture of bizarre plots and fantastical happenings, and at the centre of these plays is the young female character. Released from the strictures of tragedy, where our heroines inevitably must die, the romances free the female character, give her an active agency, and allow her to become the custodian of a redemptive space, an active communal spiritual force that can work beyond the theatre walls. Hope in what lies beyond the real is central to these dramas, and can moderate and even diminish the prosaic scepticism of characters like Antonio and Sebastian, for instance, who at the close of The Tempest 
fail to be embraced by such positive communal grace. Under such a wealth of beneficence that these plays hold out, those who remain outside the re-established collective order are notably and visibly reduced by their separation. Unlike the real world of the church in Shakespeare's day, this theatre does not interrogate men's souls, neither does it catechise nor force confession, but offers journeys that enliven us as all chemical transformations take place, reminding us that harmony may arise out of diversity, like gold distilled from lesser metals. Two connected vessels, the theatre and the world beyond. If theatre does not show us the marvellous, then what is it for? And how better to transform the world, as the Dadaist Hugo Ball put it? Only the theatre is capable of creating the new society. Thank you to Kate for that lovely piece. And we're going to explore more now with herself and her colleague David Rice as we look at further connections between Shakespeare and the Surrealists, how it's relevant to life today, a sprinkling of the miraculous, and unearth a bit more about what Shakespeare's plays tell us about the society that he lived in. So hello to Kate and to David. Thank you both for joining me. Hello. Thank you for your your wonderful piece, Kate. So just to uh, very briefly introduce that you are the sort of Shakespeare expert in this dynamic duo and, and David is more the surrealist uh, expert, but I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit on that. So first of all, please, could you maybe Kate first and then David, just tell us about how you got into studying Shakespeare and or surrealism and if there's a favourite particular play, artist, character, feature that really grasped you. Okay, thanks. Thanks, you, Felix. Right, I've always loved Shakespeare, ever since I was at school. And then I, I did, a, for my MA, I did a lot of research on the Jacobean theatre. And one of the things I did in the Jacobean theatre was the, the way bodies are uh, depicted. And if you know Jacobean theatre, you know that it's incredibly gruesome. There's all kinds of, you know, horrors going on. But one of the things that I was very interested in is the way that female characters are depicted. And this led me to thinking about what happens to a lot of female characters when they die. And a lot of them come back. For example, if we think of Desdemona, that uh, Othello smothers her, and then there's about two pages, and then she comes back, says something, and then off she goes again, and she, she really does die. And there are other characters that are similar in a way. And I started to think about where are they going? So I, I moved from bodies into something a little bit more metaphysical, if you like. And that's what got me into... Uh, the late plays of Shakespeare, where you have characters who are seemingly dead and then come back to life. And the the two moments I that really matter to me in, in Shakespeare, well, there's, I mean, there's lots of moments that, and lots of characters that one admires, but the, the two moments is, uh, the first one is in The Winter's Tale at the end, where the very famous moment when the statue of Hermione miraculously comes back to life. And what I like about that moment is that the audience, no matter how many times you've seen it, no matter how many times that you know that it is the, the actor playing Hermione, it nonetheless is quite magical. And I'm quite fascinated why we still think that. The second moment that always fascinates me is in a lesser-known play, Pericles, which is probably collaborative with uh, George Wilkins, probably wrote bits of it. But there is one moment at the end when Pericles, who is blind, who has been on this dreadful journey, all manner of horrors have happened to him, and his daughter, Marina, who he doesn't know it's his daughter because he can't see her and he's not, he's not seen her since she was a baby anyway. There's this beautiful moment when we, the audience, know, Marina knows, and Pericles doesn't. And it's that delay, that dramatic irony, that just, again, no matter how many times you see it, it just fills you with, with this marvel, this feeling of the marvellous, I think. Kate and I have been uh, together for nearly 30 years. <laughs> and uh, uh, my background was originally psychology. And uh, I start, uh, I've always been very interested in psychoanalysis, specifically Freudian psychoanalysis. And over the years, we've, we've had so many conversations <laughs> drawing on our backgrounds. So n knowing Kate was a real sort of gateway for me to discover lots 
fascinating things about Shakespeare. And Freud was a huge fan of Shakespeare. He always called Shakespeare, you know, the great sonicologist, and came to realise that the third corner of the triangle was actually surrealists. The surrealists were huge fans of Freud and via Freud to some extent, but also through Romanticism and Gothic, they, Andre Breton and Leonora Carrington and some of the others, great interest in Shakespeare. So that's been sort of part of the the kind of the dialogue or trialogue, really, that's been going on. As far as my favourite bits of, of Shakespeare are concerned, I suppose you know, my, my two favourite plays have got to be Midsummer Night's Dream and Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, to me, is truly surreal in that people often think surrealism is a kind of a, a fantasy escape from reality. It's not. It's a challenge to reality. Surrealism literally, if you wanted to translate it, would mean a super reality. And I think that Midsummer Night's Dream gives us that. We've got the kind of, you know, the ordinary Athens under Theseus and it's patriarchal and it's actually rather brutal. And then out in the woods, everything goes completely topsy-turvy. Love is unleashed. It goes completely out of control and actually comes back and changes Theseus's Athens. I mean, the thing that's often overlooked is that if you think of Midsummer Night's Dream as a game, Hermia wins. She has been condemned to death for refusing to marry the man that her father and uh, Theseus want. <laughs> she runs off to the woods with the man she's really in love with. And after all the folder roll and all the rest of it, they end up together and get married. And Theseus and her father basically just, I mean, they're, they're just, <laughs> everybody's heads are so blown, they just let it happen. And I think that that glorious sort of overthrowing of reality by the power of Eros, the power of love, is truly surreal. So I, I adore that. Yeah, that's amazing. Could you say a bit more about what the Surrealists really enjoyed in Shakespeare or took from Shakespeare? Yes, I think Shakespeare explores the whole range of human experience, all the things that are outside of our ordinary everyday perceptions. The Surrealists have a very strong sense that we kind of regulate our reality by imposing sort of artificial limits on it. And actually, there are all sorts of other things, the uncanny, the marvellous, the terrifying, the evil, the erotic, and all of these things are part of the, the, the palette that we should be using to understand ourselves and our world. And Shakespeare uses the whole palette. And that's what Freud loved about him. And of course, and quite specifically, I mean, there's real deep psychological insights there in Shakespeare that Freud admired and, and the Surrealists admired. For example, I mean, the deep psychology of Othello and where his jealousy comes from is, is a beautiful case study of you know, the Freudian theory of paranoia. He's actually disavowing his own uh, attraction to, to Cassio and goes through these kind of disavowals of, I can't admit that I love him, but I can't admit that I hate him, so I'm going to make her love him in my imagination and punish Desdemona for it. And Iago, of course, understands this and exploits it and with less than hilarious consequences. So yes, I think it's the whole palette of, of human experience and the, the, the challenge to our narrow, sanitised, everyday reality. I think that's what they, they admired. When you said about the delay, Kate, there's a lot of those sorts of elements in Shakespeare with asides of characters showing their true nature to the audience while not revealing it to other characters, for example. So it's something that he, he really likes to to delve into in, in a lot of the plays. And especially when I think about it with what are supposed to be real historical events. Now, you said about the revolution in theatre. And like I said in our correspondence, I was thinking about Brecht and Arturo Ui and, and things like this. Now, Shakespeare was obviously writing under very particular kind of constraints because of patronage. But could you say a bit about what we know about his polit particular political ideas and if that ever came out in his plays? Right. Um, <laughs> this is a tricky one because, of course, he's a very slippery customer. And he knows how to duck and dive. Obviously, otherwise, he'd end up in the tower. And Richard II is the one that 
I think, nearly got him there because uh, Elizabeth took it off and said quite categorically, I am Richard II, know ye not that? Because, of course, in that play, there is the handing over of the crown from Richard to Henry Bolingbroke. So he does sail close to the wind quite a lot. And politically, it's very difficult to know whose side he's on. What we do know is that he knows how to steer a fairly clear course in the theatre, unlike some of his contemporaries, who were Ben Johnson, John Webster, often getting into sticky waters, really. But he, on the whole, manages to avoid it. I would say what we do know is that the history plays very clearly, I think, establish a kind of idea of Tudor history, which probably we still have. And, and in that sense, he's actually very conservative. But of course, in these late plays, he is not at all, I don't think. And I think that what he's doing in these plays is moving in the theatre into a more central position when everything outside of the theatre isn't quite working. And by that, I mean the church and the state too, which of course are very much combined at this era. And what you have in the early 1600s is a society that is still fractured from the ramifications of the Reformation some 70, 80 years before. I mean, this has been going on, but it's a big thing. I mean, the whole fabric of uh, English society is changed by the Reformation. And by the 1590s, you're getting counter-Reformation, the Catholic counter-Reformationists coming back Early 1600s, of course, we've got Guy Fawkes in 1605. He had been here earlier, by the way. He was trying to get Philip of Spain to come with a second armada. I think it was the end of the 1590s, maybe early 1600s. So this is his second attempt in 1605. We have the Hampton Court Conference of 1604, just before that, when James, who is not firmly established on the throne, is trying to get all these different factions together, and it doesn't work. Hence, you know, the, the 1605. So we have a society that really, uh, and also, may I add, that Protestantism itself is fracturing mm. with lots of subdivisions. And I think what the theatre is offering, and everybody went to the theatre except children, Puritans maybe, but most people were going there, unlike today when you've got a very small section of society. You had everybody going and it offers a really interesting alternative space. I know that sounds rather blasphemous maybe to some, but it really is important this. Where outside of the theatre everything is fractured, inside the theatre with these late plays, things are repaired regenerated, mended. And I think that's what Shakespeare is doing. So if that is political, then that's a clear sign that he is not on a particular, particular side, but trying to repair what outside of the theatre is in, still in disarray, I think. I can definitely see that. And David, a similar question to you, because of course, the nature of being surreal means it's not necessarily explicit. But could you say something about any social commentary or, or particular angle that if, if there was a consensus the Surrealists had? The Surrealists are predominantly left-wing. There are some exceptions. I mean, Salvador Dali wafted off to the right and, you know, made his peace with General Franco and all that kind of thing. But, but André Breton and Max Ernst and the sort of, you know, the central crowd in Surrealism were on the left to the extent that they, you know, many of them actually joined the Communist Party for a while. I mean, Breton... Uh, fell out with the communists very quickly, but some of them actually stayed, and you know Louis Aragon and people like that, and they left surrealism. They became communists, which Breton uh, didn't do. They're they're on the left, but increasingly they're getting into this idea of the necessity for a kind of a transformational politics, not just a kind of head banging between opposing sides, but something that is going to take us onto a different plane effectively. Now this isn't that they're shying away from politics, it's that they're, they didn't want to get bogged down. I mean they're totally opposed to fascism and Nazism, had no time at all for capitalism, not at all conservative, but finding the orthodox left, you know, under Stalin and so on, bullish and brutal and unacceptable. So they're looking for something that transforms the political uh, arena, very much as Kate's already said that, that Shakespeare is doing. And both of them are using alchemy as a kind of model for this. So I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here. 
No, just very briefly before, could you maybe give a couple of examples of if there are pieces of work or how that that politics may have filtered into the work the Surrealists produced, if, if it's possible to see it, so to speak, or if it just happened to be, you know, a confluence of ideas and the artistic style was, was separate? We're finding more of it in Surrealist writings than in painting. I mean, we tend to think of Surrealism as a movement in painting, and obviously the painting's hugely important, but actually the real heart of Surrealism was poetry, and they write manifestos, they write politically, and you will find much of this actually being quite explicitly discussed by André Breton in his manifestos. But it, it is the writings, I think, really you have to look for. Having said that, I mean, alchemy is to be found in the works of very many of them, particularly Max Ernst, who's the one who really kind of introduces alchemy to, to them. But the Surrealists are into revolutionary change, but what they're doing is they're combining the Marxist idea of revolution, the Freudian idea of kind of catharsis and release of the repressed, and the alchemical idea of, of the chemical wedding to produce a very kind of eroticized view of politics. Hence, the, the beauty will be convulsive or it will not be. That sort of con convulsive transformation is very, very much their focus. But it's it kind of an alchemical transformation they're looking at. And as, as Kate's already said, this is very, very close to what Shakespeare is doing. Could you tell me how this idea of alchemy was introduced into the Surrealist movement? Because it seems, you know, we think of alchemy as being something from centuries mm. ago. It was disproved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How did it come to be play a role? In in 1914, a, a, a psychoanalyst called Herbert Silberer wrote a, a book about alchemy, in which he said that it, it was metaphorically it, it fitted very closely with psychoanalytic ideas. And uh, although Freud wasn't particularly, I mean, he he said it was very interesting, which is his way of saying that he didn't find it very interesting. Jung uh, thought it was rubbish. Uh, it's quite interesting. Decades later, Jung cottons onto alchemy and gets very excited by it. And we always think that he's the, the main man for linking sort of depth psychology with, with alchemy. But it was Silberer. But Max Ernst read Silberer's book. And when Ernst came to Paris in the early 1920s, he brought with him a good knowledge of Freud. He'd studied psychology at uh, university and he was a native German speaker. Uh, so he wasn't reliant on haphazard translations, and he brought the ideas of alchemy as well. But for the psychoanalysts, they saw alchemy as a kind of metaphor for both Marxism and psychoanalysis, of uh, these kind of dialectical processes that lead to a kind of convulsive transformation that takes us into a super-reality. I would love to know what Shakespeare would have made of Freud. <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine them spent quite happily chatting together even after all this time wherever they are over a bottle of wine. Well, one could argue that Shakespeare created Freud. Well, <laughs> one I, know, of... I think Freud would be the first to admit that. <laughs> He's yeah. one of his characters. Yes. <laughs> just just a bit later. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So this idea of alchemy you touched on in in your recording Kate and you said about these late plays this sense of wonder and, and being miraculous. Do we know why? Or, or, or if these plays are seen as distinct from the rest, is there a clue as to how this artistic shift came about? And also possibly what might have come next? Yes. If you look at the plays from about 1600 onwards, they, not all of them, obviously, but there's a lot of them that are rather melancholic in their mood. We have Hamlet, we have Troilus and Cressida, we've, and then actually becoming very dark, like Macbeth and King Lear. And then after that, we've got Timon of Athens and Coriolanus, if we, I'm presuming this is the order. They do move around somewhat. And before that, the late 1590s, we've got the rather, rather joyous Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, Twelfth Night. Although each of those plays has a little bit of gloom within it. The fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon and Titania, of course, fight over this little Indian boy, which is rather disturbing. As You Like It, of course, has got uh, Jay Queets, 
puts, you know, a gloom on everything. And of course, Twelfth Night has got Malvolio. Uh, so you always get this sense of gloom. I don't know whether that's a clue to Shakespeare's character or not, I wouldn't like to say. But what we certainly have is an acceleration of this kind of despondency and despair in the early 1600s, which possibly culminates in uh, Lear and Macbeth. The, the Shakespeare academic Stephen Greenblatt describes King Lear as an emptying out. And he actually says there's absolutely nothing, to, nowhere to go after that. You are actually tragedied out in a way. And I think that's quite interesting. And also linguistically, the plays start to have more negatives within them, particularly that word nothing, which means different things at different times to Shakespeare. Much Ado About Nothing is quite different from signifying nothing, which we have in, in, in Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, King Lear, nothing will come of nothing. That word really, really starts to become, I think, more, more, more prevalent. And I don't know why this is happening in Shakespeare's life. I've no idea. But it's certainly happening in his plays. And one gets the impression, that's it with tragedy. He's probably had enough of it. Where do I go? Maybe it's finished for him. There are also plays, a lot of these plays are worryingly uh, at the end of plays like Macbeth's, for instance, where you have a, a new king on the, the throne, Malcolm, but he's at the mercy now of the English king who's supplied him with forces. Where are the Norwegians? At the end of Hamlet, even, the Norwegians are, are about to invade Denmark. So they, they don't keep their eye on the political ball, if you like. And while they're busy soliloquising, forces are in gaining ground. And I'm wondering whether that, that, again, is a political move, that, you know, this inwardness from 1600 to about 1607, really uh, politically is actually not very healthy. So that might be one reason. Another reason, I think, is that he's revisiting these early comedies, Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, Twelfth Night, for example, and adding a bit more, because, of course, the characters, there's a lot of wonderful female characters in these plays who are very to the forefront of the action. And in these late plays, we have these female characters, Perdita, Miranda, Marina, Imogen, and they all take centre stage for virtually all of the play. And that's interesting in itself. And I think they're a kind of catalyst, if you'd want to use that alchemical idea. They make things happen. They don't have to go off stage to France like Cordelia has to. And of course, they don't have to die at the end. They do marry at the end, like these earlier characters, Rosalind and, and Viola. But they are marrying and also politically they're joining royal houses together. In Winter's Tale we've got Sicily and Bohemia, in Pericles, Tyre and Mytilene, in The Tempest we've got the two houses of Europe uh, coming together. So there's a sense of openness of you can breathe at the end of these plays and all will be well. So I think that's that's something that maybe he's thinking of. Maybe we need a new kind of drama, not comedy, not history, not tragedy. We call them their romances. I'd like to call them the alchemical plays because they are transformative. Definitely. Along with the fact you were saying about the female characters is, is very interesting. I also wanted to ask in a similar way if this idea of the reversal of death is particularly significant. Yeah, it's this is a tricky one because, of course, it, they are reversible in these plays, except there's one very important character called Mamilius in The Winter's Tale, the little boy who does indeed die, and he does not come back. And it's very shocking because everything else seems to be absolutely fine. And then at the end of the play, you think, well, what about the little boy? I have a theory about that, which is that if you are putting this on stage, um, particularly in Shakespeare's day, I think you would have the little, the boy, he won't be that little, to, who plays Mamilius would then play the part of Perdita. And then you've got a complete, a per perfect combination of male and female at the end, so that Mamilius can live within Perdita. And he's actually visited this a little bit little bit before in Twelfth Night with Vila and Sebastian. Vila is looking for her twin. Um, we know he's alive, she doesn't, and she carries him around because she herself changes into a, a male, um, Cesario. So that this male-female thing I think is quite interesting. But more importantly, in the real world, obviously, death is not reversible. But in the imagination and in the theatre, anything can happen. And I think Shakespeare's audience at this point, and they are much different from modern day audiences, 
where the religionist, even though the, the world, the religious world is fractured, they still are great believers. They are Christian, uh, Catholic or Protestant. And faith is absolutely essential to the way these people conduct their lives. And their faith has been rocked substantially for the last hundred years. And what you do have in these plays is that this if you if you are patient and have faith in these plays, death will be reversed. And obviously the audience know that that's not going to happen in real life, but it might give them confirmation of the afterlife, which is also under threat in the sense that purgatory has been abolished. Who's going to go to heaven? Are you the elect? Are you the damned? This, these plays re rekindle that faith, I think. And I think people go out of the, uh, hopefully go out of watching these plays, feeling that that is, that there is something comforting about that, that there is something else. And that word faith appears a lot in these plays. Paulina in The Winter's Tale, Pauline, Pauline, St. Paul, actually says, awake your faith. Fide uh, Imogen in Cymbeline becomes Fideli. And of course, she's brought back to life. So I think that's really important. After the, the character's, who actually start to lose faith, I think. Macbeth signifying nothing, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yargo questions the idea of the afterlife. What you do now is makes who you are. Hamlet's got doubts. He's been studying in Wittenberg. And of course, King Lear. Where are we in, in Lear land? There's nothing. So that the poetics of despair turn into, I think, the poetics of faith in, in the later plays. Very interesting. Okay, so as we come towards the end, I wanted to ask you both of these, especially Shakespeare, there's there's a lot been written over a, a long period of time. But how do you, and I'll ask David you first about the Surrealists, how do you think they are, or, or their work is, is relevant and important to our life now? Oh, <laughs> well, look around you how impoverished our reality is, how alienated we are. I've mentioned Freud several times, who, of course, is hugely important, but so is Marx and Marx's theory of alienation. And I think there's a good way of looking at surrealism, that it is a struggle against alienation. And linking, linking this to Freud again, you, you can actually see around us sort of powerful cultures which express alienations. We've got alienation of, of the ego with the sort of dehumanising use of the intellect with management and technocracy and people building systems and so on and so on and just shoving people, through, you know, organising people's lives for them in the most high-handed way. We've got alienation of the id, alienation of the passions with brutishness and hatred and intolerance and racism and misogyny and nationalism and fascism and all that kind of stuff. And we've got alienation of the superego, the, the alienation of morality into sanctimonious, dictatorial, kind of neo-Victorian closing down of possibilities that anything remotely erotic is instantly pornography and must be banned and you're not allowed to say that and this and this and this. I mean, we're, we, we are actually swamped with kind of cultures of alienation. And that's before we start talking about Russian tanks rolling anywhere and so on. Surrealism is a fight on all these fronts simultaneously. It's an all-out attack on alienation. It's about reintegrating us. And this reintegration has to happen through a kind of alchemical transformation so that the intellect, the passions and morality all of which are part of us, all of which we need, are actually talking to each other. And what Freud understood is that each of those aspects of the human psyche needs the other two to stop it spinning off into something horrendous. I mean, Freud's actually quite explicit about what happens when an individual, if any of the three main aspects of the psyche becomes dominant, and they're all nasty. You know, the best we can do is a kind of dynamic dynamic interplay between the three of them where all of them are keeping the other two in check so i think that's that is a, a hugely important thing also of course as kate mentioned in her podcast of course you know surrealism and shakespeare are the two main weapons that the oppressed around the planet have used you know in the sort of 
post-colonial period to articulate themselves and also to reconstruct their own psyches, if you like. The, the alienation that is brought upon oppressed people by the oppressors is not just a matter of policemen coming over and bashing you over the head. It's getting inside your head, making you think about yourself in some sort of you know negative way or what have you. And it's interesting that oppressed people, whether it was in Eastern Europe, whether it's in the, the ex-colonies of Asia, Africa, where have you, it's Shakespeare and surrealism they're consistently turning to to express, articulate. A beautiful statement from uh, Suzanne César when she talks about surrealism as the tightrope to our freedom. But other people have said similar things about Shakespeare. He, he, these are vocabularies that are accessible to marginal people. And in today's world, we're all marginal. You know, we're all being pushed around by alienated subcultures. Many of us are alienated in our own heads Surrealism and Shakespeare, I think, are the two the, the two strongest weapons we have to yes. fight back against this. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, as uh, you say, about the way Shakespeare's been appropriated by oppressed people. They've been post-colonial era has helped to redefine their identity. And all around the globe, there's, I, I believe, there's, a, there's always a Shakespeare play being mm. put on somewhere. Mm. And interestingly, not always in, in English, but when it is done in English, um, I can't speak about translations, but the poetry is important. And in times of stress, in times of, of need, we tend to quote Shakespeare because he, he seems mm. to have the words for it. He seems to be able to put it together. And it's, it's not just the stories that, that Shakespeare says, it's how he, he tells the stories and the way he, he uses language and language is um, our prime mode of communication. And I think the theatre is so important to us. It's, it's such a pity, I would say, that not enough people can, can get to the theatre or can afford to go to the theatre. That's what I really mean. And it's become a kind of like secondary part of, of a lot of people's or even not even a part of people's mm. cultural life. Actual being in a place and experiencing something as a group is so important, whether it's in a theatre, street theatre, Shakespeare being performed on, on the streets anywhere, if you like. But it does bring people together. And we've got this kind of this collective consciousness, the, the alembic, as I mentioned in the podcast, which is the theatre itself. It's full of ingredients that make, as Ariel says, something rich and strange. And when theatre's really good, it can mend and I think it can do that now. I, I love that. It's also interesting that you say about the, the theatre becoming sort of a secondary part of culture because it also seems to echo a lot of the stigma around Shakespeare generally if you ask the average person on the street, you know, seen as, oh, this is something I had to do in school kind of yes. kind of thing. But just to add the kind of coda to that, if there was something, and, you know, like you said, many people will be familiar with The Tempest, but perhaps not with the other plays. If there was a particular feature that you were to say to people go and have a look at the romance plays again, or if we can rename them the alchemical plays, what would the reason for that be? Because they can if you engage with them. And I think you have this business about alienation that Dave said is interesting because you've got to kind of unalienate yourself. You've got to, got to go with it. But I think if you can engage with them, then it's a bit like when you're a child and you look at something and remember what, when when you're a child, wonder is something that children do naturally, and it's something we forget as we get older. And I think you have to open yourself up to that, not become a child, but trying to remember mm. how important leaving yourself behind a little bit and just just giving yourself up to something, and and all those kind of cynical aspects that try and beat you down in life, all the things that Dave's just mentioned. If you if you kind of engage with these plays, they will kind of help you. I think to kind of help to leave that that world behind. And a lot of people don't even know they're in that world. That would be what I'd say. Go and obviously it depends on you've got to have a good production, uh, which is an another matter altogether but uh, if it's a good one it should really really change your life mm. if i could add a, a very slight short code to that this one of the central words in surrealism is in, in andre Bresson's surrealism is the marvelous mm. the marvelous is beautiful 
the marvelous is always beautiful. In fact, only the marvelous is beautiful, as he says in the in his first manifesto. Before he even gets onto the idea of beauty being convulsive, which we already talked about. But yes, I mean these late plays that Kate's been talking about, they're roots to the marvelous. She's talking about sort of you know reawakening that sense of wonder. Marvelous is a good place to start. <laughs> and would you say that's the same for someone who maybe came from the outside and was looking at surrealism? Mm. Look for the marvellous. And the marvellous does include the uncanny. That is an aspect of the marvellous as well. I totally agree. Well, thank you very much. I Just finally, I wanted to ask you, what sort of work does it involve on a day-to-day basis being an expert in Shakespeare or surrealism? What do you, what's your kind of activities? What, what are they like? Keep reading. <laughs> uh, what's the other thing about Shakespeare is that he is difficult. And I know people say, well, I had to do it in school and I never want to do it again. But the more you engage, the more you enjoy. And then the connections start to, to happen. And the more I read about Shakespeare, I think, oh, right, that links to that. And then you start to see patterns in his work. You start to see why he might have revisited this and why he might have done that. So engaging with the plays always, but also constantly reading. I've mentioned Stephen Greenblatt, you know, as one of the great Renaissance uh, academics, but there's there's a there's a raft of them. Uh, and they're always, you know, there's so much rich, rich stuff now uh, being written about Shakespeare. So there's lots of interest there. And, you know, I've mentioned the post-colonial uh, readings. There's, there's so much going on in Shakespeare studies. So I, I never get bored. <laughs> and I think Making contact with people who are sympathetic is enormously important. Surrealist flourishing groups, and we, we have a surrealist group here in Liverpool, which is called Surrealapool, uh, which you'll find easily by just typing in surrealapool.online, <laughs> and it'll take you right there with copies of our journal and all sorts of things. But yes, find people who are sympathetic and in, engage and exchange with them. And one other thing as well, Give yourself space for chance. Allow things to be left to chance to some extent. Don't get overly rigid about pre-organising and pre-ordaining everything because something quite uncanny happens. If you create a space for chance, odd coincidences start to happen. Serendipity is, is one of the key features of surrealists in my experience. When they talk about their history and so on, how often, it's the kind of sliding doors thing, if you like. Mm. Give yourself space for sliding doors to happen. And extraordinary things do have a strange tendency to happen. <laughs> well, that is the, the perfect note to end on, I think. So thank you very much to both of you. And uh, yeah, I hope you continue to find the marvellous <laughs> in your continued work. Thank you very much. Thank Felix. you, Felix. It's really nice talking to you. Enjoyed this a lot. Now, you may have noticed at the start of this episode that it was a bit longer than usual, and I hope you can now appreciate that with two such great guests, it was definitely worth the extra time. So thank you to those two for that magical conversation. Lots to think about next time we encounter the Bard, for sure. It just leaves me now to tell you that we have opened our call for papers for the June Technic Congress on the subject of engagement. We'd love for you to present your ideas in an episode and then join us for a Q&A. Thankfully, this time it will be in person, so it would be great to catch up with as many of you as possible, actually in the room. The call for papers can be found on our website, a link to which is in the episode description. Alternatively, you can email us at technicaster at gmail.com. Also in the episode description will be a link to Surrealapool, the artistic movement which Kate and David are a part of. And I thoroughly recommend checking out their website as there's a lot of good stuff to read, but also some excellent interactive content. So do go and have a look. That's it from me. Hope you have a great week. Bye.